Hi Simon, let's talk about Get Back, an enormously successful documentary series about the Beatles recording the album Let It Be. It is based on unseen footage that was supposed to be used for a previous documentary. It puts together a lot of elements that it seems to me you research or are part of your interests, like pop culture, a form of a rear view approach to cultural phenomena you analyze in Retromania, the book from 2010, among other things. I imagine you've seen it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Watch the whole thing. Um, initially, I was a bit like, this is a bit boring and depressing. And then I just got absolutely, because they're not getting on, the Beatles aren't getting on at first. Um, and, and they're in a, in a kind of rather depressing space but then it's sort of you get caught up in it and then they move to a different studio and billy preston arrives and the, the vibe changes and the um, linda mccartney i don't think she was married then to him but you know uh turns up with her daughter and it just suddenly becomes a much happier thing yeah and i was fascinated by it um i mean there, i was intrigued from the start simply because you know as someone who's written about retro culture the fact that it's like a nostalgia, like a it's like a nostalgia causing a generative event, public event that was based on something that was for the Beatles a form of nostalgia. They were like trying to get back to their early feeling they had as a band where they they didn't really use the studio; they just played live in the studio, trying to go right back to how they felt as a group, a gang of friends, even before they were famous. You know, like with Hamburg, and when they were a skiffle group, the Quarry Man, I think. One of the songs in the session is one of the very first songs they wrote. They continually play these old um, early rock and roll songs when they're sort of messing around. They, 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 they kind of keep their musical limbs uh, fit in trim by riffing on, you know, old rock and roll songs, old R&B, blues songs, you know. Um, so there's a there's a sort of, um, and it's all this idea that Paul McCartney's come up with sort of say the boot group from splitting up really, and disintegrating and this kind of bring back this feeling. So, you know, get back to where you once belonged is sort of, you know, boast explicitly in that song, Get Back, even though it's not, actually the song is inspired by uh, anti-immigration politicians of, it, of that era. Um, it sort of has that feeling of, you know, they're trying to get back to where they once belonged, where they once had this excitement of a group starting out. Uh, but they're older and wiser and they've got beards and, and uh, have children and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and, uh, or children are around. And so they're, they're transitioning, leaving behind this, this boy gang, adolescent thing that they're, they're sort of trying to bring back. So I think it's fascinating. Nostalgia is part of the project. And then we experience this second layer of nostalgia, whether it's, you know, for me as a, British person born in 1963, and I grew up in London um, until I was about four or five. But even after that, we would come back to London regularly because we lived quite near London. So to me, it was like time travel. I was like entranced by the colors. Linda McCartney looks like what mothers look like, you know, young mothers. In those days, women usually had children much younger. So a, a mother was, some, was a woman in her mid twenties, you know, and, uh, she looks this radiant, uh, lovely young mother with this 
daughter would be the same age as I was, probably in 1969. Heather, her daughter's like six and this delightful creature. But like just the, the look of the clothes, um, whether it was hip people like the Beatles wearing their brightly colored clothes or just regular people like in the street, uh, ordinary people, or you know, some of the people in the studio are, are dressed quite squarely, aren't they? Like uh, Alan Parsons has like a very smart little jacket and suit on. George Martin looks like a, a 1950s British film idol or something. It's very smart looking. But uh, you know, people's faces, the toast they were eating, the tea they were drinking, the color of the mugs, you know, it's like being transported back to the past in this incredible way. And I think even for people, you know, for people my age, that, especially those who grew up in Britain, there's this feeling of time travel. I think it's probably the same for younger people who only know the Beatles. So it's an extraordinary um, experience. Uh, and it's sort of like, um, and it raises a lot of issues because on the one hand, it's sort of weird. It's kind of weird. We're still talking about the Beatles, you know, we're still, the Beatles are still the biggest thing ever in pop music. And this, this documentary can be one, one of the biggest popular culture events of that year, you know, uh, even though it's from a long time ago. So that's sort of weird. And then there's a sort of element of like, um, uh, what does it feel like to you? Did you, did you watch it? Oh, uh, well, you know, I'm not a huge fan. You know, oh, right. Oh, you, you're not a fan of the Beatles? Well, no, I'm okay with the Beatles. Like the Beatles, I watched chunks of it as an incredibly huge pop phenomenon constructed with um, small, explorative, exciting values. I thought it was very vital and not twee and sentimental. You wouldn't spend eight hours. Yes, yes, exactly. I thought that the reaction were very interesting because I think Peter Jackson's also wanted to address some philological issues, you know. Oh, yeah. Yoko Ono, the relationship between Paul and John and so on and so forth. It feels like there is some kind of agenda there. There's a revisionist thing going on. They're trying to because okay. actually Yoko wasn't disruptive. Paul, well, you know, it shows Paul getting into conflict with people, but it doesn't, the other version of the story is that he was this bossy guy who was ordering everyone around and, and they were resisting him like sort of, you know, sulky teenagers who wouldn't go along with it. And this, you really, it is, you know, it does give you this feeling of this guy desperately trying to keep the band together and trying to be like the, almost like the father of the group in a weird sort of way. And uh, a good, like a good, or an, uh, you know, the good older brother, you know. Um, and you see, he's very nervous and he's like biting his nails at certain points when there's all this tension. And it's very, I find it very moving. And I, I um, and, and yeah, and the, and the presence of Linda and Yoko is very touching the way they're just sort of there. Uh, and um, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's extraordinary. The duration of it, I think is, is unique. The idea that there's, I and mean, this is a condensed version of hundreds of hours of footage, yeah. and it comes down to eight hours. And but there's a it's a unique in documentaries in, in that it has that sense of lived time. Like even though it has been very craftily and cleverly edited and, and restored to make it look even more vivid, the colours seem so vivid. Um, again, that brings to me brings back this feeling of how the world looked when you were a child. Everything's very bright, and it's how I remember the past. 
Um, it, um, yeah, there's a real sense of duration and of the mundanity and these long interactions and pauses and nothing much is happening. And it goes on and on and, and it's all, and a lot of times it seems, it seems very trivial what's going on or just, you know, you don't see these things normally. So it feels like an extraordinary capture of the past mm -hmm. as this lived, breathing thing, you know, the re a real feel of time that you don't get from like, most documentaries are quite chopped together. Right. Certainly most fictional films trying to make the past insanely exciting. You think of like the biopic of, of um, Rocket Man but on El Elton John. It's a very exciting movie, it chops around. I'm not a big fan of Elton John, but I found it very entertaining. Uh, there's no pauses and they never show the creative process. Like you, you would, if you see a film like, like I think in the Queen film, um, there's, a, there's a sort of tiny gesture at how they came up with Bohemian Rhapsody, but it's compressed into a minute. Um, but like um, or in the Elton John film, you don't see any sense of him as a musician struggling to write something. It just comes out of him like this magic thing. But in the in the Beatles, what's the get back? It's amazing. You see these songs gradually evolve. Like one of them's like just playing a song, and no, the others aren't even. They have no idea that you know a great classic song is being written. You know, they're just they're doing something else. You know, they're drinking their tea, smoking, uh, fiddling with the drum kit. And meanwhile, George Harrison is stumbling towards um, um, something. You know, uh, which Frank Sinatra said was one of the greatest love songs of the. 20th century, you know, and no, they're not even paying attention. I mean, this sort of genius is emerging or, you know, the gradual emergence of the song get back out of this jam. Um, and there are many examples where you actually, it's a unique glimpse into what the reality of being a working band is, which is a lot of messing around, a lot of jamming, a lot of, well, what do we do? We got to hear, how do we get, how do we have a bridge that gets us to the, this bit or, how do I, what kind of beat would go well with this bit, you know? And it's like, you never, you never see this stuff. People never show uh, the reality. So that, that it's this sort of uh, very poignant, powerful sense of reality, uh, I think comes across in it, um, mm. which is very addictive. And like, I could, you know, at the end of it, I was like, I could watch more of this. And then as a sort of critic, someone who's criticized retro, I'm like, but this is crazy. Why am I spending, why would I devote so much time to these events in the past? And why would, you know, we're still stuck with the Beatles. You know, the Beatles are still the greatest adventure that ever happened <laughs> in uh, in music. Uh, so it's a it's a kind of conflicted feeling I have about it. On the one hand, I, I sort of feel I should uh, be against this kind of thing. But on the other hand, I, I was kind of addicted to it and mesmerized by it. From what I saw, I thought it was not a museum-like attempt at putting things together to make an historically correct rendering of the facts. Um, I thought the footage archive was used with some propulsive creative energy. I felt there is an energy infused in trying to imagine some new form of storytelling format. It's sort of, you know, the museum exhibitions kind of create this sort of um, sense of uh, biographical and artistic logic and inevitability and, yeah. and then and, and it also shows you every all the ideas he had and, and all the influences and things he stole from in a way that i think detracts from the reality of how people experience pop music when it actually happens which is you don't know 
what inspired it and you don't know what it's referring to and it just hits you as this um i think there's a real problem with this sort of annotation you know and this uh foot you know all the footnotes now you have um uh, like i mean a good example with bowie is the song station to station which um to most people who heard it at the time the lyrics would have been incomprehensible because they're all full of references to magical texts and uh, and and things and now you can look all that up and so you when you experience station to station you you you, you can you can see what every line refers to there's a book uh, it's referring to cabalistic texts and such and such you know uh, Alistair Crowley or whatever but uh, you know in 1976 it would have just been this strange eerie song with with mystifying lyrics and a very strange mood to it um so I think there's you know there's something to there's something that um, this sort of uh, historicization, museumization, and, and uh, annotation, and, uh, and contextualizing, and, and the, of music that d d takes away some dimension from it. Um, and yeah, somehow, despite it all, if it's really good music, it still survives. You know, like you can know what everything about the circumstances of the making of the song fame you know like how john lennon came into the studio and contributed to it and this and that but it's still if you hear the song it's still so powerful it really hits you uh um but uh, you know i think it you know generally speaking uh it's too much <laughs> there's too much contextualizing and too much information yeah yeah uh, a lot of pop music yeah um, i was surprised that Get Back didn't diminish the Beatles' erratic strength for the public. People on social media platforms use categories as genius or the same old romantic criteria to defend the band, staff that groups which are born within the complete transparency of the internet um, don't have. Well, speaking of which, I'd like to ask you, in which way do you think the internet changed the role of music writing? Yeah, actually, having said that there's too much history and context, <laughs> uh, actually, I, I kind of think that is one of the things that people actually want. Um, and it's lucky for me because I can, you know, I can provide that role as a journalist. And a lot of the writing that I do is actually, you know, about the past. Um, and um, I don't particularly see a contradiction in that and having written a book called Retromania because the things I'm writing about were new in their moment. I'm not writing about things today that are like, you know, recreating garage punk or not often anyway, you know, unless there's an artist that does it in a very interesting way, uh, like some of the hauntology people used to do. Um, uh, you know, if I write about Chic, say, and explain where they came from and, you know what their influences were and their impact in the time i'm talking about what was a living culture and was a new thing and a new sound that was very hugely influential and shaped the sound of the 80s i recently this well last year i wrote a piece about chic for the streaming company tidal uh and those kind of pieces people seem to really like um because um you know if, if they hadn't heard chic which or really listen to them properly, then it's a sort of like, 
oh, this is the, pulls them into that world of music and both explains it and introduces them to this great music. It still sounds great. Um, but if you had, if you have lived with Sheik all your life, it's still actually enjoyable to see someone, you know, tell the story. Um, and one thing I've noticed, one thing I do, <coughs> I don't, do, I haven't been doing that much recently, but I was a, was a period when I was doing a lot of tributes to dead artists, and I noticed these are the pieces that people most like. You get the most response to, you know, when someone dies, like say. Um, Andy Gill from Gang of Four. Uh, if you can write, you know, and you have to do it quite quickly, you have to often stay up all night and write it. If you write a piece that sort of captures what was good about them and like their contribution to music, people seem to really like it. It's sort of like, I feel like it's like, um, you know, like the, like delivering a eulogy at a funeral, you know, uh, there's a real art to it. And, um, and so people seem, you know, so that, but, but I think just generally, in terms of music, uh, including new stuff, but also old stuff as well. There's so much of it that, that it's, that people need reasons to listen to bits of it, particular bits of it. Like, you know, you're presented with so many choices. What should I listen to? Well, here's someone who, um, here's someone who's making a, a case or a narrative for a particular area of music, whether it's archival music or very obscure new music. Uh, um, and, and give, maybe invents a, a genre name for it or, or, or identifies a pattern within it. And that sort of gives this surplus value to the listening, that otherwise it would just be sounds, you know, it would just be listening to like interesting sounds, well-produced sounds or whatever, but they wouldn't have any kind of um, shape, you know, and I think people like that sh a shape, a sort of narrative, a, a feeling that, uh, it signifies, you know, I think that this, so this seems to be the role of the critic now is to sort of help. You have this very disordered, chaotic field of music, so much music. You don't know what to listen to necessarily. You don't, when you do listen to things, you don't necessarily know why it's being done or what it might mean. And the role of the critic is to sort of give kind of shape to this very amorphous, uh, vast field of, of sound. Um, so I think, you know, I think that's sort of encouraging. I think there's still, for people like me and then for like younger people I know who are doing writing, including my son actually, um, Kieran, um, this is sort of a role we can, we still have. We don't necessarily, yeah, I think still people, people still review records and do interesting, valuable reviews. And, but the review function isn't as important because people can hear it themselves. And, you know, you don't need to have someone uh, like in the old days, you, the journalist was the very first person to hear it, and you might you might be looking for advice on whether to buy it or not. You know, uh, now you can just hear it, and, and you don't have to buy it. But what you need to know is what to listen to and why certain things might matter. You know, so that's the sort of continuing function of the critic. Uh, and then there's the function. You know, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is this ongoing thing of uh of rewriting the past and coming up for, with new sense of the past and what 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 was what was what has been forgotten what was neglected at the time but was interesting you know uh, people are almost inventing new genres to describe particular phases of past music 
using terms that weren't used at the time. You know, I think that's quite an interesting thing uh, that people do. Yeah, on a level, on all levels, I think I completely agree with you. What I think changed a lot since maybe 15 or 20 years is the fact that for curious people, of course, this figure is very important to rewrite the past, to find new connections, to explain. But the casual listener, most of the time, is invited to listen to stuff that's connected or sounds similar to what she or he already has listened to or liked before. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever used, I've never let the algorithm guide me. Um, I mean, things flash up, you know, when, when I'm using um, a streamer or a, or YouTube or whatever, things flash up, sort of tempting you. And I guess, I guess sometimes I'll I'll click on a video out of curiosity or 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 an album. But usually, I'm a purposeful listener. And I kind of know what I want to play next because um, I've got things I need to catch up with or things that are related to what I'm currently writing about or obsessed about but um yeah i think you know i so i don't have any personal knowledge but but it is mystifying to me how my my children seem to my, my two sons seem to know seem to find out about music in a way that's largely outside the realm of, of music writing particularly the youngest kid i don't doesn't read any my oldest son uh kieran does read music reviews because he's a music journalist himself but um, the youngest one finds about all, all this kind of music, but it's, there's never any interaction, I don't think, with, with you know, a site like Pitchfork or, um, or any music journalism. It's through other sort of lateral methods of finding out about things. And um, I should probably do some like research, like I should probably uh, in interview my child and, and sort of work out how they find out about things. A lot of it through friends and, and Tipos, but uh, or TikTok, I think is another way of finding about music. But um, it is an interesting thought. I mean, I guess it has, you know, I guess for that, for a lot of people, they never read music criticism. They just picked up on what they heard on the radio, and this is like a new form of much more decentralized radio in a way. Um, the thing I liked about radio was that you know it would play you things you didn't know. You would like uh like not constantly but like every so often something would be played or and particularly the kind of radio i grew up the dj sort of pride them prided themselves on very occasionally taking a risk on something that <laughs> uh, this is like the bbc radio pop people um and even the very daytime mainstream people who were very playing very safe music would every like every month or something or would play something really outside their range just to sort of show that they were still young. <laughs> and, and, and so that way, you know, things like Laurie Anderson's uh, Oh Superman became a big hit in yeah. the UK. You know, it got to number two in the charts. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if the algorithms have re replicated that role mm -hmm. to the same extent. I feel like maybe they keep people within that zone of what they are already comfortable with. Well, algorithms can be strange uh, just before this conversation i was listening to where are we now 
that David Bowie's track set in Berlin, and I was thinking that it's so strange that Berlin is the only—it's one of the few places where David Bowie has situated himself uh, in music writing. Well, it's not entirely true, but it's a city is connected to a lot and that he has used as an actual reference, even if he stayed here for a couple of years, maybe. Um, you know, the way Saint Etienne used London as a backdrop uh, in their songs or a lot of LA band reference geographies of the cities. I was thinking, why David Bowie didn't do the same thing with London or New York or other place where he lived longer? And then the, and then the next track was by the ACDC. <laughs> I suppose the algorithms and streamers are only really an extension of, of sort of what radio programmers do in the States. So I grew up with a BBC thing. But in America, it's much more like a science. And the whole thing of radio programmers developed into the thing where they, they, they wanted to avoid people changing channel, you know. So they, it's just that makes the choices safe. They all stay within this sort of safe zone of what the format of that station is. And mm -hmm. I suppose um, the algorithms are like a sort of uh, an AI version of that kind of knowledge that you know, you'd have people who were like radio consultants who like, there's a really famous guy's name, I forget, who, who, who worked, who gave advice to, for money, to hundreds and hundreds of stations around America, like, you know, from based on research he'd done, people's listening and what kind of music they liked. And um, I think it's Lee, oh, I can't remember his name. But anyway, he was like, changed the sound of radio in America. So I guess this kind of science of, getting people to stay listening to you has kind of gone into this whole other level with streamers. And um, um, I, I don't have any direct personal experience with it because I use them in a very sort of old fashioned way, I suppose, like almost like a record shop, you know, like, and in a record shop, I would usually be looking for something. You know? This conversation is of course promoted by Archivio Ricordi, and a lot of the things you covered in your books are connected to a very specific form of archivist. Um, I'm talking, of course, um, of the DJ. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, I think that's definitely part of what DJing became. I mean, there's a weird thing in DJing where, um, you know, on the one hand, a lot of it is about playing absolutely new music, you know, like uh, the latest thing, the freshest beats. And then that developed with 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 um, with the, with uh, in sound system culture in Jamaica, and then in the UK with the dub plates. It's not even the latest music. It's like music that hasn't isn't even out yet. You know, it's like music from the future, the near future, like maybe six months. But you know, you're actually hearing music that's so new it isn't available to buy yet. Um, so that's one part of it. But at the same time. Uh, you had this parallel development and sometimes the, D, the same DJs that are playing the latest things are also doing this curatorial role. You have this, this build up of this role of the DJ as, um, yeah, as, an, as a curator, as an archivist, as a, as a collector who discovers rare tracks. Uh, and, and it sort of develops separately in at least two different places. On the one hand, it's happening in hip hop where people are, Early, very early hip hop in the mid 70s, 
the DJ is looking, you know, looking for beats and and finding them on odd rock, you know, odd rock, rock records from 1970 or 1969, but also obscure funk tracks, African records, you know, all over the place. They're finding these beats. Same in, I guess, in early DJ disco culture, underground disco. There's there's looking around to find very rhythmic percussive tracks that just can go, can go on and on and on and put dance in a dance in a trance um but at the same time in the uk you have northern soul where there's a whole culture based around rare soul and like um tracks that were unsuccessful when they first came out in the 60s uh but are good you know have some quality that that people still um that makes them playable in this culture northern soul which is like a, a culture of people dancing to 60s music even though it's the 70s and black music has moved on they, they are still fixated on this sound of Motown and so but they don't want to play the obvious Motown songs they want to play things that sound like Motown so they fixate on all this rare soul they call it rare soul um th things that were good but just it didn't weren't a hit you know obscure there's only a few hundred copies of them in the world and so you get this this role the DJ, the DJ in Northern Soul isn't doing anything very clever with turntables. It isn't like, I think maybe they even only had one turntable, but they're like, they're entirely, their entire reputation is built, built on knowledge and, and this curatorial relationship with quite recent history. It's only at most 10 years earlier. Uh, you know, this is a culture that's happening in 1970 three 1974 but the music is from a 10 years earlier or eight years earlier but they have to look for it they have to find it then they then they find something that's rare and they they want to hide that information so they they put stuff over the label so no one can see and djs are kind of concealing their knowledge and hiding it this thing that thing actually occurs in lots of different music subcultures where uh collectors and djs cover over the records so that rival DJs can't find out what it is. So there's a sort of, on the one hand, they're preserving the knowledge. On the other hand, they're um, trying to um, monopolize it, you know, or kind of keep it secret. So it's an interesting thing. So yeah, that's the beginning of, you know, and then, and then that sort of role of the DJ as um, knowing about these, these, these sort of uh, esoteric groovy records carries on through hip-hop uh when djs become producers and you have people like um i don't know premiere and the rizza and then in jungle you have people like ltj bookham uh a lot of you know although on the one hand they're making very new music and on the other hand a lot of it's based on this knowledge of you know, obscure records from the 70s, funk and jazz and, and R&B records, things that they sample. And then you get the DJ, DJ Shadow, you know, it's kind of a, turning that into an auteur kind of thing, like a real art form. Um, and then on to people like Burial and, and uh, people like that. It's, it's sort of, uh, so there's a double thing, you know, on the one hand, DJing is a lot about the latest, newest thing and, and music that it seems to be coming from the future 
And then there is this sort of DJ archaeologist kind of thing, digging in the crates and, and finding this treasure, you know, from the recent past. This reminds me of a scene uh, from a movie, if I remember correctly, it was called Scratch, um, where DJ Shadow was in this basement of this huge uh, record store. It was crate digging and was playing one of the records and it looks at one of those piles and I can't remember the exact words but started referring to those piles of records as forms of memento mori. A pile of inexpensive records where eventually your production will end up. Yeah, he talks about how um, you know there all these groups have their dreams of making it and most of them don't, you know, they want to be stars, but most of them they just make a few records. Yeah. Yeah. But there's this one track on this one album where there's some magic in it. And he is the sampler, you know, the, the DJ producer can release that magic. And the group even has a kind of anonymous immortality through that. You know, they can or at least they come alive again and their yeah. their sort of creativity and life force. Is brought back into the world, so it's there's kind of something kind of beautiful, kind of slightly eerie and ghostly about it. And that I remember that scene, and it's it's under the record store, and it's like it is like him going to the burial vaults of a pyramid or something, or some kind of you know the where where a king has been buried with all this treasure. Except there's no king; there's just all these remnants of people's musical dreaming. Um, I think in what I think he said he once found a dead bat down there, you know. So it's kind of an eerie place. There's a sort, there's a sense of sort of um, going into the underworld, you know, and coming back with with these sacred or lost artifacts. You know, are you a completist when it comes to record collecting? Not really. There's a few labels where I've sort of um, tried to get everything they've done. Um, but I never, never did, never really pursued it. Um, just, just a couple, like a sort of an, a, a, few, an, an, a, a, a kind of electronic series of records, avant-garde records called, um, uh, I can't say it in French, uh, something like like the 21st century, it's called the Philips 21st ah, century yeah, yeah, series. That. And they had these very um, amazing, Silver covers, yeah, that are like kind of weird patterns on them. And it's really, the music's really amazing. The design is really attractive. And I've collected quite a lot of them, but I have, you know, I'm a long way from all of them. It would cost an awful lot of money to get them all. And you can hear nearly all the music online. So, um, and there are certain jungle labels where, you know, I kind of, uh, kind of wanted, desired to have them all, but and got a lot of them, but, you know, like the label like Reinforced or Moving Shadow, where it's, you know, certainly between a certain, maybe not all the way through the 90s, but between a certain period from like 1990 to 1995, a lot of, it's very, very good music all the way through. The sleeves have a certain quality. Um, there are kind of odd things, even when it's not good, they're at least weirdly interesting, sort of really eccentric kind of releases. You kind of do want to have them all, um, and um, but no, I, 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 you know, so, and certainly with like quite a lot of 
artists who I consider my favorite artists uh, that based on really on one or two reference by them. I haven't really, you know, often listened to all the other records, which uh, is weird, you know, like an artist like um, Roy Harper or John Martin, some of these figures, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I kind of tend not to listen to the whole body of work. It's, it sort of becomes almost like work at a certain point. I kind of keep fixating on the, on the one or two great albums they did. Um, but, you know, with streaming now, of course, it's very easy to make, it's very easy to think, oh, I'll listen to everything someone did. And I, I continually make these playlists, you know, like all of Joni Mitchell. And it's a very bad way. <laughs> I love certain records by Joni Mitchell, but it's a very bad way to listen to an artist because you're listening, you know, uh, if, you, if you attempt to listen to it all over the course of a day or two days, you get very tired. <laughs> and, and it's not like, it's not the right way, you know, when these records came out, there would be like a gap between Court and Spark and Hissing of Summer Lawns in which you would listen to Court and Spark many times, absorb it, you know, adjust to the direction Joni Mitchell's music was making, then you'd be ready for hissing of summer lawns. Uh, and, you know, to try and listen to one after the other, it just kind of flattens that out and you don't digest, you don't digest the music. So I've done that, I, you know, I, you know, I have like maybe a hundred of these sort of lists I've made of like artists, all their albums, chronologically, you know, but it's like, often I never even listen to them. It's like a weird neurotic, archiving thing I do you know so like an intention to listen I'm declaring I will listen to all of I don't know um all the Amund Amundul two albums you know uh and sometimes there are things I have listened to in the past but I, I feel like I'll listen to them all and get the sense of the artist's evolution you know and but it's not a, I don't think it's a good way to listen to music it's, it's, <laughs> so it's you neurotic did it, you, you did it with Sheik Oh, well, that was because I was writing a piece, yeah. yeah so I did that yeah, with you, yeah. yeah. And that was interesting because then you could see how many odd things they did. They didn't just do songs that sounded like Good Times and The Freak. They had odd sort of jazz numbers and ballads and, you know, all kinds of strange album tracks, you know, and, and they really were serious musicians. Uh, and uh, so that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, there's uh, still a lot of room to play around. Well, people talk about deep cuts, don't they? That's the thing, like where they sort of say, like, okay, these these are the songs everyone knows by an artist. Uh, yeah. One of the deep cuts, you know, like this, the the album that was three albums after the really successful album, uh, and it's like the fourth track on side two of the, you know, and they do something really odd or strange but interesting, you know. So those will be the deep cuts. Music, contrary to the environment where I mostly work, which is to say the visual arts, was never too keen to discuss or deconstruct the criteria on which it builds various canons, um, lists of important records, histories. But I've got the feeling this is changing in the last decade or so. Yeah, I think, I mean, it feels like in, in the last 10, 15 years that there has been quite a lot of movement within. Um, criticism to, and people writing histories to do this revisionist history where they, where they take a genre that was never taken seriously at the time and they, and, and they sort of give it, they try and 
recenter it you know i'm trying to think of good examples but i mean one would be like there was people have written about freestyle latin freestyle which was a kind of music that was very popular in new york and, and miami and wherever there was a latin large latino population in america probably the most famous crossover would be um this group shannon who had who, it's like give me the night and let the music play that will actually ch chart hits and there were a few other crossovers and i think madonna's had some of her songs have a little bit of that feel to them um some new order songs kind of cross into that zone it's this sort of early electronic but quite poppy dance sound um and that was never anything that anyone really took seriously like and it wouldn't be reviewed in rolling stone or 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 even the village voice but that various people have said oh well this was a very this was the sound of my youth but also like it's like really cool music and they mapped it out and kind of taken it seriously um uh, i think it was particularly a critical Maura johnson did, did a whole appreciation of, of of freestyle um but i've seen other people write about it uh as this important sound of the 80s that was never um never on the on the critical map and there are quite a few other genres like that i mean i suppose in the larger sense disco has kind of been recentered as a central kind of music and you know a lot of people know you know a lot of people know the story of the disco record burn, burnings you know the 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 the, the whole thing of the anti-disco yeah, yeah that's become a mythic event of this sort of the totalitarianism of rock against disco almost to the point where it's kind of overstated the hostility uh, of rock culture to disco because many of the most famous rock groups of the era made disco records the rolling stones pink floyd another another break of the wall is nothing if not a disco funk record you know many of those artists you know and the phil collins would make records using the earth wind and fire horn section and and uh, you know so um you know there's some truth in this idea that disco was persecuted but it also was widely embraced by rock, <laughs> rock yeah, performers wow. um and uh i don't th i don't think the anti-disco thing was ever as big in europe or the uk as it was in america like uh, there was the gay factor and disco was perceived as decadent in the us whereas there was this seamless evolution to house and techno in Europe. Disco just evolved in its own environment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite an interesting, um, I mean, it's a very interesting thing to do. And then it, it has always become like a kind of game, people competing to find something from the past that was denigrated. Like this, there was a whole thing with yacht rock, right? The, the, the sort of rediscovery of, of um, I don't know, Hall and & Oates and, and uh very well produced 80s pop and that was kind of um became you know having been something that it, you know in the 80s indie rock groups and alternative rock groups hated that kind of music you know a group like the replacements or who's could do or whatever were against that kind of music now today's indie groups uh or kind of it's one of the things that people draw on you know um I guess Ariel Pink is one of the people who started that. We have a group like Heim, who, in terms of their positioning in music, are essentially an, an alternative rock group. 
but they sound like, uh, you know, their sound sounds like sort of Fleetwood Mac records from 1987 or something like that. Very, a very polished sort of sound. Um, so I think it's interesting the way, you know, history's being reconfigured and, and adapted. And, but I, I don't think there are many areas left that are genuinely deserving of being rediscovered. Mm. It's sort of striking to see that there is the need to revive the notion that techno came from black producer in the Midwest, whereas while I was growing up, it was almost self-evident. You would queue for hours and pay whatever to check a real deal DJ set by an artist from Detroit or Chicago. Well, on the one hand, it's an obvious fact that, you, that it's surprising no one needs to be reminded. On the other hand, electronic dance music did spring up all over the place at the same time you know i mean even if you want to stay within black music electro music in new york uh, is a whole different part of the invention of electro music yeah germany italy came up with stuff with all the italo music in the 80s uh, you had japan with the you know, magic orchestra you, you know so on the one hand I, on the one hand, I would sort of, you know, I think it's important people to know about Detroit, but on the other, um, uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, this machinery was everywhere. You know, yeah. mostly Japanese companies were making this machinery. The machinery got everywhere and people in the UK and Germany and all over Europe and, uh, and different parts of America were doing things with it uh, more or less simultaneously uh, and coming up with, electronic dance music um so there's a sense in which um you know the 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 sort of ultra fixation on detroit as the origin is kind of misleading i think as much as you want people to know how important it was those records were and how you know they they steered the music in a particular direction like which i guess would be taking the songs out of it you know and making it instrumental in a particular kind of yeah. field you know, yeah, yeah. there are things going on in Frankfurt at the same time. There are things going on in uh, Sheffield, you know, uh, that are also pushing in directions that will inform what happens in the 90s with rape culture. Yeah, back to what you were saying, I think there's not so many spaces left for new historical discoveries made me think that I bumped into an old acquaintance of mine uh, who was still, I think, is still spinning Gabriel Roark or style or whatever is the evolution of those styles. And he said, you know what, we're free because even if people dance to our music, there's no one in this world that will take us seriously in any way. <laughs> No one would retrace our history or make what we're doing here academic. Um, this is happening here, serving the function it has to serve as it is. And, and I find it quite funny. Yeah, that's true, actually. There are, there are, within dance music, there are particular areas of music that, that are not uh, historicized or considered canonic. So, like, Belgian techno of the early 90s, um, particular kinds of, tr well, trance music in general, but like psychedelic trance is not, you know, not considered part of the canon, but it's a hugely popular music. So yeah, there are loads of untold stories, I suppose, yeah. Someone could do a, 
you know, uh, left their mic. Um, yeah, I mean, even my book, Energy Flash, is quite, um, covers a lot of music, but there's still things that uh, are passed over in the text quite quickly that could, you know, go into enormous detail. It's, you know, someone else could go into enormous detail on uh, certain sounds. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's, uh, there's definitely room for more 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 histories to be rediscovered or or brought out yeah yeah and just out of curiosity as a last question i don't know if it fits the conversation are you studying for a new project a book project um oh, i'm not working on anything at the moment i've got a lot of ideas i'm trying to decide what one is you know the most uh, exciting, you know, so I had to decide what's exciting for me, what people would want to read about, and then also what could I, I could sell <laughs> to the point where, um, you know, I, I can afford to do it, you know. Um, yeah, I have loads of ideas, things I'd love to write about, but I, I, what, if you do a book, you kind of have to think like, is there a need for it, or, or are there enough people who'd want to read it? Um, so it's sort of like a consideration. Um, yeah, but um, probably it would be something historical, I think. I don't, I don't know if I would. Um, uh, it would probably be some area of music in the past that um, I would uh, look at again. I feel like it hasn't quite been, yeah, historicized fully. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really there. I'm actually teaching at the moment, so um, I'm teaching oh, at CalArts, mm -hmm. so quite a lot of my time, yeah. I'm... Oh, really? What is the class? What do you teach? Um, well, last, last semester it was called Studies in Experimental Pop, and then this, I'm just about to start teaching uh, a course in DIY cultures and, and the idea of the underground in music, but I'm doing another course about um, the voice, actually, uh, kind of experimental uses of the voice. Um, that's something I would actually like to write a book about, but it's one of the things where I don't know, I don't know if there's, you know, I don't know if there's a demand <laughs> for such a book. Like, it's not obvious to me that, that uh, lots of people would want to read that or even any, anyone. Um, so the fact that I would be really interested isn't quite enough. It's a bit like, you know, like, like um, well, I suppose the retro book, I, there wasn't really any particular sense there was a demand for it, but there was a sense that people were talking about it. So, so such that when I was writing it, you know, every month I'd see an article sort of saying there's so much retro music and I'd get really worried. Like, I feel like I had to hurry and finish the book quickly because it felt like there was a conversation uh, already started on it on this topic um whereas I, I don't necessarily see a conversation about voice experimental uses of the voice really uh although it's going on in current music it's like a very noticeable thing with you know conceptual electronic music most of the people use the voice in some weird way you know and, so, and they often use their own voice but they process it you know think of holly herndon 
um, uh, there's loads of examples of people using the voice. And then there's the whole auto-tune thing uh, of the last 10 years or so. It was really interesting use of that technology in, in, in hip hop and, uh, and other kinds of sort of street music. Um, in fact, a guy, where has he gone? I think I put it away. Um, there's this guy called Kit McIntosh who wrote, did write a book about that called Neon Screams. It's all about the use of auto-tune. Um, it's very interesting. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, it's quite, it's quite fun. It's quite interesting being a teacher. It's quite, uh, I have done that kind of thing before, but uh, this is like the first real it's not full time but it's it's like a big part of my week Lack of time yeah. yes no no that, that's amazing it's an art of course it's a it's an art um it's a it's an it's an art an art school they have a music department they have a sort of whole section that that's a faculty of music so the people i'm teaching are, are musicians you know which is is interesting because i'm not a musician myself um, so I sort of have to reach them uh, and, and uh, connect. I mean, I had kind of know quite a bit about technology, but not, not anything like what they know, you know, about technology. And I probably know a bit more about music technology than your average music journalist, uh, but really nothing like, nothing can compare to the sort of way they, they know technology uh, yeah. and i don't know you know scales and keys and things like that um so oh it's great it's great yeah, yeah. um so um do you have more questions no we... no 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 i think we i think we have done uh, we, we, okay. we, i think yeah we, uh, Cool. Well, that was enjoyable. Uh, I hope there's some stuff, useful stuff in there. It's quite, um, mm. quite ramble, rambly, uh, some of my answers, but um, 